So, the Tuesday night Dharma movie is about the Four Noble Truths. <laughs> and I um, begin with one of my favorite quotes uh, about truth from uh, Gloria Steinem, the uh, feminist, the radical feminist uh, that, that carried so much of the movement um, in, the six, in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And she said, the truth will set you free, but first, it will piss you off. <laughs> so, these truths will set you free, and they may piss you off. And just to notice, well, we'll see. We'll see, we'll, we'll see where that goes. And actually, we do see, because each time we come into retreat, we follow the footsteps of the Buddha and the path and his path to the Bodhi tree. And we, when we follow our mindfulness, it begins to lead us into the exploration of what really is freedom. The exploration of what really will lead to happiness. This is the exploration of the Buddha. And this exploration becomes clearer as the retreat lengthens. Here we are in this incredible landscape, an incredible natural setting. And we're nurtured and fed by a menu that is just spectacular. Are the cooks here? Are some of the cooks here? Many bows to you. And we're supported by this wonderfully caring community with these common intentions to create more openness and freedom and happiness in our lives. And we have a set of devoted managers that, that uh, fulfill every need that we might have. Are the managers here? I see. <laughs> Priceless teachings. And we have the support of this amazingly diverse and supportive teaching team that has supported me and I hope has supported you. And as we sit, are we completely at peace? Is the mind quiet so that we can have the awareness on the breath or the body or metta or whatever is the focus of our reflection, contemplation, mindfulness? Is the mind free of anxiety, worry, anger, sorrow, loss, thinking, fantasy, desire? These are some of the things that we've all been talking about in, the, in the, both the group and the individual meetings. So if the mind is not free, what is that about? What's happening? What is happening is that in that moment, we meet the same experience encountered by the Buddha under the Bodhi tree. We meet the first of the Four Noble Truths. The truth that there is suffering in this life. Uh, the Pali word is dukkha. And suffering is just one of its translations, of course. The translation, um, it never completely gets the flavor. So some of the other words that have been used to indicate what dukkha means, uh, to point in that direction, are dissatisfaction, discomfort, frustration, imperfection, and stress. So you get a sense of what that, that, that word encompasses. Sometimes the, the image is of, a, um, of an axle uh, in, a, in the hub of a wheel that is improperly um, situated so that the whole of the hub might be square but the axle might be round. And so there's this constant dissatisfaction, this constant rubbing against. I don't know, suffering sometimes can be even more intense than that for me. <laughs> and the second noble truth that, that 
in the existence of this suffering, there is a cause. And this cause is attachment or clinging. And just as there's a cause, the third noble truth says there is a cessation or an end to the suffering. And the fourth noble truth is that the Buddha articulates a path towards freedom, a path that is, allows us to live our way into freedom from suffering, the Eightfold Path. So when we engage in this practice of the Four Noble Truths, um, one distinction that has been helpful for me is the, is the distinction between what is termed suffering and what is termed pain. The suffering that the teachings refer to and offer relief from is the internal suffering that we often cause to ourselves. That internal suffering is different than the external pain of the world. Conflict, catastrophe, loss, abuse, illness, trauma, oppression, even war. The teachings do not say that it is possible to live this life free from the pain of those external conditions. Those external conditions are the sorrows that are part of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows that are said to be part of each and every life on this life plane. But what the teachings do say is that it is possible not to add any more suffering to these external circumstances. That there is a way that the mind can feed the pain of external conditions and make the pain even greater. This is what is referred to as suffering. So in retreat, we begin to see if there's you know, pain arising in the knee or the body, we can quickly add to that experience by judging our bodies to be wrong or inadequate or that we're doing it wrong, we're doing the meditation wrong. And then we can get even more frustrated with our judgments, especially when the invitation is offered to us around loving kindness and metta and we see how unmetta we are in that moment and we begin to judge our judgments and get depressed over that judgment. And then we get depressed over the depression. And we fall into this hell realm called despair. And we feel even worse when we have to pay oodles of money for therapy to try to get our way out of it. This is the extra serving of suffering that the Buddha says we just don't need to have. Most of the time we're not living into the first noble truth. We hear the words and we might understand them, but we are so reactive to our experience that we are usually trying to change it by changing the way things are either by pushing away things that we don't like, that are unpleasant, or wanting more of things that are pleasant, or completely ignoring things that are neutral. And this is why when Jack introduced the practice of Vedana, or feeling tone, it is so critical to living into this first noble truth. We really create the non-reactive moments of spaciousness, when we simply become mindful of the unpleasant, pleasant, neutral qualities of an experience, as opposed to reacting to it. As we live and explore into the experience of the first noble truth, distinguishing suffering from pain, we can begin to see the true nature of the second noble truth. That the cause of all suffering is attachment and clinging. So I can be a rather um, 
oppositional meditator. Uh, when everybody is doing something, I'll do the exact opposite. And, um, and so on one retreat, I wanted the walking instructions to be different. I just couldn't work with them. Uh, I really wanted to walk in the hills. I wanted to enjoy the weather. I wanted to commune with nature, which I thought was a healing, you know, beneficial property. And my story was that I knew what I needed and the instructions were ridiculous, end of story. So I went on my walk and I went into the hills and I communed with nature and I enjoyed the weather. And what was so frustrating was that when I came back, I still wasn't happy. At the end of all of that, I wanted something else. I wanted the wanting to go away. The wanting itself had no end to it, even when I thought I had satisfied it. And it's, it, it, it's so interesting how quickly it comes up. Uh, we're so conditioned to this. Um, the first night of this retreat, when I sat down with my shawl, I poked a hole in it. And you know, it was like, oh, when am I going to get a new one? <laughs> and I could feel that, that wanting of it, needing it to be right. Or, um, and I had to sink into my own words when I, when I said that first night, wearing torn clothing is better than not having any clothing at all. <laughs> and it was just so curious how the mind just goes to wanting. Our culture is so deeply conditioned to satiating desire and craving. We actually glorify it. So there's a, a most telling advertising slogan that, slogan that I saw a couple of years ago from, um, it was about a Ford car. And it, it is, I want you to want me. What a codependent advertisement. I mean, you can feel the stickiness, the clinging and the craving. I don't know if you know of this comedian called uh, Louis C.K. And this, there's a YouTube video that um, it's called Everything's Amazing and No One's Happy. And two million five, two million fifty. 7,987 people have seen it, so I assume that some of you have seen it, right? <laughs> but there, here's a little clip from Everything's Amazing, Nobody's Happy. So he talks about being on an airplane. I was on an airplane and there's, a high, and there's high speed internet on the airplane. This is the newest thing I know that exists. I'm sitting on the plane and they go up, you open up your laptop, you can go on the internet and it's fast and I'm watching even YouTube clips. It's amazing, I'm on an airplane. And then the internet breaks down. <laughs> and the guy next to me goes, that's bullshit. <laughs> like how quickly the world owes him something that he only knew existed 10 seconds ago. This kind of entitlement <laughs> is a personal and cultural addiction to more. More is better. Bigger is better. And also the inability to be content. This is what Trudy was referring to last night in Enough Mind. The direction of all of the invitations into the present moment is to be with what is, to be content, to feel sufficient, and to be satisfied. The Buddha's last teaching was to um, a, a person called um, Subhadra, and um, the sutra is the bequeathed teaching sutra. He says, 
You who want to escape from all the various afflictions must contemplate what it means to know satisfaction. For people who do not know satisfaction, it does not suit their fancy even if they're in heaven. For people who do not know satisfaction, the people who do not know satisfaction are poor even if they're rich. The people who do know satisfaction are rich even if they're poor. For those of you who are familiar with the work of 12 Steps, God grant me the serenity to act, accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. This is the practice of contentment. Another advertisement that I saw walking in the streets of San Francisco, you know, uh, during Christmas season actually, across a, um, a clothing store, there was this huge banner and it said, moderation kills the spirit. <laughs> and I cringed, I literally cringed. There was this physical reaction because it told me how upstream this practice is against the cultural conditioning that we face. So it's a radical practice, and that means it produces a radical transformation. Our mind has been deeply conditioned to satiating craving and desire, and to be unaware of the consequences. As Wes said on Sunday night, those consequences are that craving and the attachment of desire can never be satiated. Do you believe that? And whether you believe it or not, there's an irony in that all craving is the craving for no craving. All craving seeks is this plateau of contentment, of satisfaction. That's what it seeks. My own experience of being lost in the addictions of drugs and alcohol proved this to me so um, viscerally, you know, looking for that high that will last, and then crashing and looking for it again, and it's totally exhausting. And eventually you get sick and tired of being sick and tired. All craving seeks its, its own destruction. It seeks satisfaction. But satiating craving doesn't create any real, long-lasting satisfaction. It's only temporary. Why? Because the craving of desire has no insight. It has no wisdom. Craving and desire cannot see the second noble truth, that the cause of suffering is craving and desire itself. Only your awareness can cultivate the wisdom and insight into the truth. So just as the mind has been conditioned to be unaware, craving, and suffering, it can also be conditioned to be aware, content, and happy. We think that our freedom from wanting is dependent on the object of our desire. But actually our spiritual freedom is dependent upon our internal experience our relationship to experience. So this means it depends on our relationship to wanting or desire. Freedom is not about getting an object to satisfy the desire. Freedom is exploring the desire itself. So when you're wanting 
anything. See if it's possible to invite yourself to drop the object and just sink into the direct experience of wanting. How does the wanting of the walking instructions to be different feel in relationship to the wanting of the hunger of the next meal? In relationship to the wanting of intimacy in relationship? Or the wanting of a new job? Or the wanting of the body to be different? This is really an experiment. This is the experiment of the Four Noble Truths. And this is a way you can live into them and find out how is it for you? How are these truths for you? Tilopa, the great Tibetan teacher who founded the Kagyu lineage, wrote, it's not outer objects which entangle us. It's inner clinging which entangles us. So as with all aspects of our mindfulness practice, the awareness of our experience is not the experience itself. So the awareness of craving is not craving itself. The awareness of craving is not being caught or lost in craving. This is the doorway into the third noble truth. The truth that there is a cessation, an ending. This is the Buddhist version of the Christian good news. <laughs> Thank goodness there are four noble truths, right? As opposed to just two. I mean, what would the world be like with just the first two noble truths? As we bring awareness to discomfort, unease, we actually begin to break the cycle of samsara or the recurring nature of suffering, the conditioned reactivity to dukkha. Sitting with discomfort, whether it's in the body, whether it's in the mind, whether it's in the heart, is such a worthwhile practice. So, a few years ago, I practiced for about six months in Thailand, and, and I ordained, and um, often I would have to sit through three and four hour Dharma talks, and we would be on platforms that were not carpeted, they were basically painted concrete, and um, we did not have cushions, we did not have zafus, uh, and I also didn't understand the language. <laughs> How many cushions do you have? <laughs> it is so worthwhile to explore what discomfort is. So, begin with the practice of the itch. I think I began to offer that yesterday in the instructions. Often when we have an itch, we just want it to go away. We just scratch. How many times do we itch out in, the, in our householder lives and just make it go away? And so, be curious about what is it like not to itch the itch? Because it's not going to kill you. You know that there's another side to the experience because you know it's not going to follow you to lunch. What is that experience? Can you bring the mindfulness just like you do to the breath? You notice the inception and the in you follow it. You track the, the breath, the inhale across its entire length. What is the length of this itch? And what is the tapering and fading of the experience? It's the invitation to explore both the itch and the urge to itch. 
the sensations of the experience and the craving of the experience. Pema Chodron says, there are 37 trillion kinds of itches. <laughs> but at the root of all of those itch itches is one common denominator, tanha, which is craving. You have to have confidence in this third noble truth, that there is an end to suffering. Do you believe in it? Do you believe that it's possible? Because if there is not that faith, there can't be that aspiration, and it will be much more difficult to manifest. But really not to worry. Because even if your faith isn't unshakable yet, even if there's doubt, the Buddha in his brilliance as a teacher developed a path towards the ends of suffering. This path is the fourth noble truth, the Eightfold Path. The fourth noble truth is the invitation to see for ourselves. Is this true? What will lead to suffering and what will lead to happiness? This is what I love about this tradition is that it not only articulates the aspiration, but it actually provides a way of getting there. Often, you know, for the ideals of our culture, we're just told, just do it. Or, you know, just say no, that, that campaign a couple of years ago. Well, personally, in my own practice, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to cultivate you know, clarity in my mind or a gentleness and openness in my heart. And it doesn't matter because the teachings provided a path that I could actually begin to live into. So first to say about the Eightfold Path that you're actually living it right now in this room, in this retreat. This is not a path that we have to get to because it is right here. And there are eight factors divided into three sections. And I'm not going to go into too much detail because it's a, a teaching in and of itself to be unpacked. But in general, the, the first uh, section is called wisdom, or panya. And there are two factors in, in, the, in the wisdom section. Wise understanding or view, which you already, to some level, have because you're here. Because you have a practice, and you are implementing that practice by coming here and creating whatever circumstances that you had to in your lives to get here. That's a tremendous amount of effort. In some deep knowing that you have, you sense that there is the possibility of freedom in these teachings, which leads to making the aspiration of wise intention the second factor of the wisdom section. Wise intention is like setting the prow of the direction of your spiritual practice in the direction that has less suffering and greater freedom. And whenever we waver, whenever we fall off course, it's the realignment. The manifestation of wise intentions, sort of the bringing our intentions into our lived experience, is the section called sila, which Trudy so beautifully articulated last night. Ethical living, ethical behavior. The three factors in this section are wise speech, 
wise action and wise livelihood. And as Trudy said last night, the uh, three aspects of ethical living allow us to have the ease of our mind to enter into the third section of practice, which is samadhi, concentration. And this third area is what explicitly we're practicing in the retreat. Wise effort, which, is, which can be described as intention fueled by energy. Wise mindfulness, the unfolding of the four, no, uh, the four foundations of mindfulness that we're, we're um, uh, exploring in, in the meditations. And wise concentration, the ability through your wise effort to bring your mindfulness to rest on an object with the intention of freedom. So this is the outline of the Four Noble Truths. But I, what I wanted to do when I decided to do this talk was to balance some of the teachings around them with what it means to actually live them, which is a little bit different than just sort of cognitively understanding um, the information. Um, so I, I went to my practice in Thailand when I turned 50. It was a 50 thing. And um, before I went, I had hair that was longer than Trudy's, but maybe shorter than Susie's. So I had quite long hair at the time. And um, I had had it since I was about 13. So I had a different persona. And, um, and of course it came off during the ordination, right? And, but it's all ritualized. As, as the whole process is in terms of initiation and entry into um, a sacred community. And so uh, when the preparations were made for the, um, the cutting and shaving ceremony, um, the, my preceptor, Ajahn Tong, um, clipped three locks of my hair, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And then um, uh, the, uh, I called her grandmother, but there was a 90-year-old Chinese Thai uh, woman that, that offered my robes to me simply because she heard that a Chinese-American had, had come to Thailand to, or Chiang Mai to ordain, so she offered my robes. And so she uh, cut the second set of uh, locks. And then Stephen, my partner, basically cut the whole ponytail off. And in the, in the, in a circle, uh, there were about 25 other people. Uh, so each of them took hair off as well. And then it came time to actually do the shaving. And so there is one monk in the monastery that shaves all the heads. He's, so I just fell into his trust because the razor was one of those old Gillette razors that you unscrew from the bottom and put the double-edged, you know, blade on the top, and, um, and, and so, you know, as they were shampooing the head, my head, all these memories of hair came back to me. I have a point to the story. <laughs> of, you know, my, uh, arguing with my mother, that I didn't want it cut, and then, you know, she begged me not to cut it when I came to Thailand, and, um, you know, I remembered this California men's gathering in which, you know, I got my hair braided to look like Bo Derek, and, um, <laughs> that's when, that's when you don't follow the precepts. Um, <laughs> And as all these memories of hair flashed across 
my consciousness. I remembered the first time I decided to grow it long. And I was 13, and I was standing in front of the mirror, and I was sobbing because I hated how I looked. I hated who I was. I couldn't understand um, the pain that I was in as a uh, young kid of color, in basically in a European-American neighborhood, who was attracted to other boys that, um, that actually you know, taunted and traumatized me. And I just did not want to look the way that I looked. And I decided that I had to change it. And I had what I felt to be this round face and that, you know, it didn't, it, it had nothing to do with what I, who I was attracted to. And so I was determined to change the way that I looked. And as the shaving started, I realized that this repressed, buried, internalized, you know, pain around external conditions of whether it's racism or homophobia in our culture, I had completely repressed that memory of why I looked the way that I did. And as the blade began to cut through the hair, it felt like a buzzsaw cutting down trees because it, the texture of the, of the blade against my scalp that hadn't seen sun ever <laughs> since I was 13. And there was nothing to do and nowhere to go, just like the retreat, right? What was I supposed to do? Just stop the blade? And I just let this cascading experience into my consciousness of all the pain of that repression, of realizing that for 38 years, to some extent, it's affected so many aspects of my life. And this rage of the circumstances and the sorrow. The sensations were moving through my experience rather than me trying to force my experience to fit the sensations I wanted to have. And there was a huge letting go. What was being cut was this attachment that I had to my conceptions of who I was, conceptions of how I should look, that being a gay person of color was somehow less than or, or inadequate, this internalized racism or homophobia There was this, just this deep letting go of all of that. In one of um, the interviews today, um, the question was, how do you let go? What is letting go? Letting go is when mindfulness comes in contact with an experience and just meets it. It doesn't push it away because it's unpleasant. It doesn't want more of it because it's pleasant. It simply meets the experience for what it is and falls away. So often we do this. That is not letting go. Letting go is not letting something stick. And as I stayed with that experience, I was able to be fully present in a way that I couldn't be when I was at that tender age of 13. I just didn't have the skills. 
This path is a purification of the heart and the mind. We don't necessarily have a choice of what we purify or when. What needs to be purified just arises. And sometimes that internalized suffering goes really deep. It goes to the very core of who we think we are. The possibility of the third noble truth invites us into the possibility that we are so much more than who we think we are. That we are so much more than just our suffering. Can we be present for that lived experience too? This is the invitation of the third noble truth. So I spent six months in Thailand and, and in my last month, um, I wanted to visit the senior women practitioners and um, teachers uh, because number one, um, they're, they're, they're not seen or heard very frequently. They're not given that much space. And, um, and so I visited uh, Venerable Damananda, who I, she's coming to Spirit Rock on May 22nd and 23rd, and I highly recommend if you're in that area to, to visit. Um, she is the first ordained, fully ordained nun in Thailand, uh, and uh, in a, you know, well, ever, because Thailand has never had a lineage of, of nuns. And she's had to deal with so much um, uh, uh, difficulty from the patriarchal system, oppression. And I wanted to meet with her because within spiritual practice, I wanted to know how to deal with the oppressive forces in my own practice or my own life. And she said something that has stayed with me um, since our visit, that intellectually I kind of sort of knew, but coming from her and her experience allowed me to sink into it in my own practice. She said, the greater the challenge, the greater the fire. The greater the fire, the greater the purification. She said that while external liberation may not be possible in her lifetime, her internal liberation is not dependent on it. That really is inspiring to me. So the hair was gone and I came back. And so um, some of my friends said, uh, when did you butch it out? <laughs> and I said, I don't know. I mean, and the next question was, will you grow it back? And I said, I don't know if I will, but if I do, it won't be for the same reasons. Because those reasons have fallen away. And sometimes there's a whisper of that old conditioning because that conditioning was so strong. But in contrast to that, you know, that, that intense hatred when I was a 13-year-old and the whisper right now, that's my experience of cessation. We cannot transform anything we're not aware of. Only at the point of awareness do we have a choice. What is going to lead to more freedom and what is going to lead to more suffering? We continue to pay attention without judgment, most of all to ourselves. We learn to pay attention to our own minds without judgment. 
we move through the experience instead of going into denial or forgetting or repression or overwhelm or dissociation or wanting life to be different. Tongpulu Sayadaw said, if you know it, meaning suffering, it will break. If you don't know it, it will go round and round. So I tell you this personal story, not because I think you will relate to it because it's a story of a gay man, and although you might. Um, and it, I don't tell it be, to, because I expect you to relate to it because it's a story of a person of color, although you might. I tell it because as a person who suffers, there may be a place of understanding for those of you who also suffer, that this story isn't about suffering. This story is about an ending to suffering. As suffering moves through awareness without clinging, we can experience the other side, just like the other side of the itch there can be a deep letting go. When we don't get dragged down or stuck in aversion, when we don't, when we usually try to throw away our unpleasant experiences, we actually throw away a piece of ourselves. So a last story about suffering and the end of suffering. Um, some of you may know who Billy Mills is. He was um, born in 1938 on the uh, uh, Lakota Sioux uh, Indian Reservation in Pine Ridge. And he was born into, at that time, all of the reservations were, uh, were incredibly uh, poverty-stricken. Um, he had tremendous tragedy in his life. His mother died of cancer when he was eight. His dad died of a, a stroke when he was 12. And he turned towards sports to, um, to channel all the grief and loss that he was experiencing. And so he took up running in the uh, Indian boarding school in Kansas. When he was a junior at the University of Kansas, he made the uh, NCAA All-American three times. And after doing that, he was told to get out of the photo because he was American Indian. He relates that he almost committed suicide over the incident. But an inner voice told him to persevere. Three years later, he went on to win the 10,000 meter race in the 1964 Tokyo Olympics. No other American has won a gold medal in that race before or since. And many commentators consider that his victory was the greatest upset in Olympic history. He writes, I asked for wealth that I might have power. I was given poverty that I might find my inner strength. I asked for fame so others would know me. I was given obscurity that I might know myself. I asked for a person to love that I might never be alone. I was given a life of a hermit that I might learn to accept myself. I asked for power that I might achieve. I was given powerlessness that I might learn to surrender. I asked for health that I might lead a long life. I was given infirmity that I might appreciate every moment. I asked Mother Earth for strength that I might have my way. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for her. I asked to live happily that I might enjoy my life. I was given life that I might live happily. I received nothing that I asked for, and yet all my dreams came true. 
each of us have suffered. Each of us have faced the adversity of the first noble truth. And like the lotus blossom rising from the muddy waters, we create these beautiful lives. The more we are aware, the more precious this beautiful life becomes. The challenge of suffering is only to survive. The invitation of awareness is the insight that we were meant for so much more than just survival. Out of suffering, we are able to create these beautiful lives. This beauty, by another word, is freedom. So with all the words that you've heard, the invitation is for you to let go of all of them. Just feel the vibration of the sounds in your body and your mindfulness. Just gently allowing the words to fade away as the bell rings. Inviting yourself to sink into and be held by your mindfulness. Returning to the silence. Returning to awareness and the possibility of freedom in this moment. Thank you for your attention.